never before has such terror appeared in Britain, nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Thus were the words in the 9th century Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describing the events which took place on the 8th of June 793. The Vikings had arrived on the English shores, but what had the Vikings come for? And why did they come to Lindisfarne? Hello, my name is Eva, and first of all, Happy New Year! Welcome to the first episode of 2023, which is called Lindisfarne and the Vikings, Part 1. Today, we will explore Lindisfarne and the reasons why it came to the attention of the Vikings. Now, for you who are regulars, you will know that I absolutely love background history. And for you, who's a first-time listener, I bid you a hearty welcome. And let me tell you that I always like to delve into the context and the major players of any historical incident which I recount. In this instance, the major players happen to be the Vikings, but it is not within the scope of this episode, sadly, to take a deep dive into the whole history of the Vikings, but to understand why the Vikings sailed to Lindisfarne we must know a little bit about where the Vikings came from. Vikings is a modern niche term used to describe a seafaring group of people who hailed from the Scandinavian lands of Sweden, Norway and Denmark. The people that we today name as Viking would probably have been slightly confused by the characteristics that we have since inlaid in the noun, Viking, a full-time warrior. But they would have been far more familiar with the term to embark on a Viking raid, or as one might say in Danish, With all this considered, though, we shall in this series call them Vikings simply to distinguish them as one group. The Vikings came to prominence in the wider world during the 8th century, when they sailed out to trade, raid, and settle in several parts of Europe, from Russia to the Balkans, from England to Paris and southern France. It was until recently assumed that the Vikings sailed and traded exclusively in Europe, but the historian Kat Jarman has since researched the presence of Indian chameleon beads in Viking jewellery, making it highly likely that the Vikings also had a presence on the ancient silk roads of the East. Now, medieval historians recounted conflicting tales about the Vikings. And contemporary historians still debate the exact reasons as to why the Vikings embarked on raids in the 8th century. There does, though, 
seem to be a general consensus around at least one underlying motive, namely a scarcity of resources in their own homeland. Many of the people who climbed aboard a Viking longship were fishermen and farmers, eking out a hard existence on land which produced little and made farming extremely difficult during long, hard winters. In short, the Vikings went on raids in hopes of either trading or finding items that were in short supply in their own local area. But they also went as individuals, intent on raiding and taking valuable goods, which included people, which could then be bartered off or sold for profit, and thereby further their own position and power in the wider context of Scandinavia. It should also be noted that Viking raids were partly aided, or rather, really took off during a tumultuous period in European history. When Carlos, better known as Charlemagne, was crowned Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day in the year 800, he united a Europe that for many years had been fragmented into smaller fiefdoms following the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century. During his reign, external threats like that of a Viking raid could be successfully blocked by a coalition of men-at-arms from all over the European mainland. However, at his death in 814, the newly formed Holy Roman Empire spiralled into a period of conflict as his successors attempted to outplay, outkill, and outmatch each other in a bid for ultimate power. This led to a period during the 9th and 10th century which saw the weeds of instability spread out across Europe, where each wealthy town, each well-placed castle, and each strategic road was fought over mercilessly. This left isolated coastal areas far less guarded against external threats. This was a situation which the Vikings made excellent use of, raiding coastal villages and gradually setting up their own trading routes. But all that was in the future, for in the 8th century, the Vikings were primarily on voyages of discovery. What was out there, and where could they find what they needed? While well, stories about far-off lands in which the streets flowed with honey and gold, as it were, were always flourishing in every kingdom, and the stories were always about lands which most locals knew little or nothing about. And so it was with the society in which the Viking lived. A few explorers came back to the Viking lands and told of kingdoms to the west where arable land was plenty, where people lived near the coast, and where goods were traded even by the humble. Those lands were known as Ingerland and were reachable 
by Viking longship. Some who had ventured out into the wider world even told of groups of men and women who bore no arms and lived isolated in houses full of what other merchants described as treasures. A few had even heard mention of one particular place, Lindisferna, off the east coast of northern England. Now, the Vikings who would subsequently come to Lindisfarne were not the first Vikings to set foot on English soil. According to the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, a Viking longship showed up on the shores of Dorset in 789, where the Vikings then proceeded to raid a village and murder the king's reeve, who had mistaken them for traders and would have demanded a tax of the Viking goods. So while Lindisfarne was not the first English Viking encounter, it was the first to be thoroughly documented and the very first to be broadcast across the width of Europe. But why did this Viking encounter resonate so strongly with contemporaries? Well, the answer to that is to be found in the perception, meaning, and position Lindisfarne enjoyed in the late 8th century. And so the question then becomes, Lindisfarne, well, what was it? Lindisfarne was and is a tidal island off the northeast coast of England, situated around 1.3 kilometers east of the county of Northumberland. Even today, access to this holy island is by sea and sea alone and totally dependent on the tide. If any of you have seen the Netflix series The Last Kingdom, the main character, Uhtred, was born at Bevenberg Castle, which would have been situated just across the bay from Lindisfarne. Now, The Last Kingdom is a fictional tale, but Bevenberg, or the area of Bevenberg, is authentically historical. And the castle survives to this day and is today known as Bambara Castle. From the 6th to the 8th century, Lindisfarne was under the rule of the Northumbrian kings. In the centuries before England was united in one crown, which happened during the reign of Athelstan, grandson of Alfred the Great. But back in 634, an industrious monk of Irish descent arrived at Lindisfarne. The monk's name was Aidan, and he had been sent to northern England from Iona, another holy island, this time on the west coast of Britain. And Aidan's stated purpose was to reintroduce Christianity to the northerners. Because by this time, some 200 years after the then Christianized Roman Empire, had left the English shores, which happened around 410, Christianity had in many places been supplanted by paganism brought in by the groups of Angles and Saxons during their migration to the British Isles in around 450 and onwards. The Roman Catholic Church in Rome still maintained monasteries in the southeast of England, 
but on the western borders and in the north, it was Ireland, not Rome, which formed the bastion of Christianity. Hayden had himself grown up as a monk on the Irish-held monastery on Iona, and he was called to Lindisfarne in 634 by Oswald, the then newly crowned King of Northumbria. Oswald had himself grown up on Iona as a prince in exile when royal feuds had forced him to flee his pagan homeland. When Oswald regained his lands and his throne, he sent word to Iona to provide him with a learned monk who might hold mass and baptize the people of Northumbria. Aidan proved the perfect man for this job. He exercised patience, he learned English, he got to know the Northumbrian communities, or as the 7th century chronicler Bede wrote. Aidan was one to traverse both town and country on foot, never on horseback, unless compelled by some urgent necessity, and wherever in his way he saw any, either rich or poor, Aidan invited them to embrace the mystery of the faith. Aidan was made bishop, and he set about founding churches and places of worship all over Northumbria, as well as giving his blessing to several monasteries. Aidan might have resided anywhere in Northumbria, but he deliberately chose Lindisfarne as the site of his own priory and cathedral. Now, as pious as Aidan most certainly was, this choice was a crafty political maneuver. For as mentioned, Lindisfarne was just across the bay from Bamborough Castle, the king's residence, and it was said that Aidan's quarters in the priory faced the king's private chambers in the castle. So Aidan knew that the king knew that Aidan was watching him. This geographical and personal connection to royal power elevated Lindisfarne's standing in Northumbria and brought with it easy access to powers well beyond the northern lands. Lindisfarne continued to thrive well after Aidan's death in 651 and his subsequent canonization and elevation to patron saint of Northumbria further increased Lindisfarne's prestige as kings, knights and bishops made pilgrimages to the tomb of Saint Aidan on Lindisfarne. Saint Aidan's successors managed to entice foreign monks of great renown to make their home on the Holy Island, and from there these monks produced works that would become famous throughout the Christian world, such as the outstandingly beautiful Lindisfarne Gospels. This manuscript was famed even in its heyday for its illustrations, its encasing in fine leather which was covered in precious gems and rare metals. This manuscript survives to this day, is currently housed at the British Library in London, and should you ever have any opportunity at all 
to see it, I would urge you to brave the long queues and do so, because it is spectacular. But I digress, and all this is actually just to give an idea of the standing of Lindisfarne in the 8th century. Following the end of the Roman imperial rule, Britain's mercantile possibilities had for a time been stifled. But as trade resurged, the communities on the east coast of England increased in strategic importance, and an exchange of religious texts and books came to thrive. Work from Lindisfarne was coveted all across the Christian world and praised from Constantinople to the Balkans. But just as fame brought admiration, it also brought Lindensfarn to the attention of those who might desire its valuables. Lindensfarn itself was considered a gem, referred to as a precious jewel in the Christian world, sparkling bright with piety and holiness. For those unfamiliar with Christian rhetoric and meaning thereof, it might have been quite easy enough to interpret comments about precious gems and diamonds as a quite literal reference to the treasury that must be found on Lindisfarne. Now, I am not suggesting that the Vikings expected great hordes of jewellery on Lindisfarne, simply noting that what the Vikings would have considered treasure might not have been the same things a bishop might view as valuable. For it was valuables, transportable goods to raid, that the seafaring people whom we today know as Vikings came looking for in 793, and they came armed with the knowledge that abbeys, monasteries, and cathedrals were inhabited by men who did not wield weapons. Next time we hide among the carnage as we witness the events of the 8th of June, 793, when Viking ships were spotted nearing the shores of Lindisfarne, and the laymen fled for cover as axe-wielding men walked towards them with cruel intent. I hope you liked this episode. If yes, please leave a like wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about restless times in history. Until next time, I have been Eva. And thanks so much for listening.